Section 8 of The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Kibbe. The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories by Joel Chandler Harris. The Kidnapping of President Lincoln, Part 2. Later in the afternoon, Captain McCarthy went to the room occupied by Bethune and Mr. Sanders, and his first words were those of congratulation. He shook Mr. Sanders by the hand with great heartiness and regarded him with undisguised admiration. "'Do you know what you have done?' he cried. "'You have thrown a big black bag over the head of the most capable man in the United States Secret Service. He is really an expert. He only comes here occasionally, and he is a different-looking man every time he comes. The first time I saw him he had black hair, parted in the middle, and a beautiful mustache and eyeglasses. I always have a peculiar feeling when he comes into the house, and this feeling is especially strong when he comes into the dining-room. I believe if he were hid in a closet, and I should chance to pass near it, I'd know he was there. I know him through all his changes, and it is very fortunate that this is so. I invariably make it a point to let him know that I see through his disguises. "'You do?' exclaimed Mr. Sanders, surprise in his voice. "'Yes.' It is calculated, either to make him nervous or to give him a certain confidence in me. I find it is always best to appear to be perfectly straightforward, as you were at dinner, added Captain McCarthy, laughing. <laughs> Why, I had quite a confidential chat with the man not half an hour ago. When he entered the dining-room today, I met him at the threshold with, Ah, good day, sir. I'm glad to see you again. <laughs> it was a small thing to say, but it disconcerted him. Otherwise he would have addressed himself to you, turning to Bethune and the consequences might not have been as pleasant as they were. He would have irritated you, sir, and I see you have something of a temper. Bethune made a wry face. I wish there was some sort of patent medicine that would take it out of me, he declared. Time is the medicine for that. Time and experience, remarked Captain McCarthy. It ought to have been spanked out of you when you was a little chap, said Mr. Sanders. But so far as I know, you never got but one lick and done you any good, and that was when Nan frailed you out. Bethune blushed like a schoolgirl, for the incident rankled in his memory. The wounds our pride receives are longer in healing than those of the flesh. Captain McCarthy could see that the subject was not a pleasing one to the young man, and so he did not press Mr. Sanders for the particulars, but addressed himself to more important matters. First, there was the dispatch that Mr. Doyle had entrusted to Bethune. Captain McCarthy invited the two travelers into another room, reaching it by means of a series of connecting rooms. Here they found three or four men busily engaged in writing at a long table. Only one looked up, and he, with a hello cap, went on with his work. To this man Captain McCarthy handed the dispatch, remarking, See what you can make of that. The document consisted of about a dozen lines. In this number of lines there were a number of words marked out by parallel lines, and other words crossed out. The clerk glanced at it and passed it to an older man with the remark, It looks all right to me. The elderly man took it and immediately began to swell, apparently with inward rage. "'Looks all right, does it? Why don't you learn a little sense? We'll be ruined by you yet.' "'Well, it's out of my line. Get the S.K. code.' Apparently still in a rage, and with much muttering and growling, the elderly man went to a tall cabinet lined from top to bottom with pigeonholes. S.K. stood for scratch code, and this he fished out from a number of others, a thin pamphlet containing a dozen or more pages printed on tissue-like paper. This queer pamphlet contained some information that was very interesting to Bethune and to Mr. Sanders as well. It assured its readers 
that a certain word scratched out with one horizontal line meant one thing, with two parallel lines another thing, and so on up to five parallel lines. Then cross-scratching and cross-hatching meant so many different things, according to the number of crisses and crosses and scratches and hatches, that the reader finally stood amazed at the fluency and versatility of the SK code. The upshot of it was that a document which appeared to be, on the face of it, a very cordial introduction, was about as follows, after the illumination of the SK code had been shed on it. The bearer of this is dangerous. Under pretext of bringing a woman from Washington, he proposes to kidnap the president. He has a pass from Lincoln, his companion harmless, will tell truth if pressed, take initiative, have both arrested and then tell secretary. This should help both of us. Let woman be brought south by ought not rye. It was over the conclusion of this translation that the elderly clerk growled and snorted and finally gave it up. That's all I can get out of the code, he grumbled. The last scratch stands for a cipher, an ought or not. Could it be Autry? Walden Autry? asked Bethune, turning to Sanders. Why, certain and sure. I heard some of the boys say that Waldron went over to the Yankees right arter the war begun. All his mammy's folks live in Massachusetts. Why, don't you remember the chap that come to Harmony Grove in sixty, preaching freedom to the niggers and how the boys got behind him and come mighty nigh putting out his lights? Well, that chap was Madame Autry's Massachusetts nephew. Then that is the man, remarked Captain McCarthy with emphasis. For some reason or other, this man Doyle wants to get Autry south again, or he knows that Autry wants to go. Reflecting a moment, he turned to the elderly clerk. Mr. Crampton, that dispatch must be recopied and rescratched so as to give a better account of these gentlemen. Why, the nonsense about kidnapping Mr. Lincoln would send both of you to the gallows if Mr. Stanton's eye fell on it. Of course, such a thing was never contemplated. He paused, and fixed an inquiring eye on Bethune. Well, Bethune began, but he paused. He seemed to be too busy copying the translation of the original dispatch to complete the remark. "'Why, of course not!' exclaimed Captain McCarthy. "'The scheme is preposterous. That man Doyle is simply fiendish.' Leaving Mr. Crampton, the elderly clerk growling and grumbling over his task, which was by no means an unusual one, Captain McCarthy accompanied young Bethune and Mr. Sanders to their room again, where they discussed the situation at some length. Mr. Autry became a new factor in the problem. Mr. Sanders and Bethune both knew him well, and he knew them. Until 1858, with the exception of two college years, he had lived all his life with his mother in Harmony Grove, and there was every reason to believe that he would recognize either one of his fellow townsmen the moment he laid eyes on him. "'What do you propose to do about it?' Captain McCarthy inquired. He had been fully informed by this time of the plan to kidnap the president, but he did not repeat his assertion that it was preposterous. That was for the ears of his clerks.' "'I'm going right ahead,' replied Bethune. "'There's nothing else to do.' "'Yes, sir,' said Mr. Sanders. "'We'll go right ahead and brazen it out. "'And if you hear have been strung up, "'I just drap a line to Meriwether Clopton, Esquire, "'that William H. Sanders, late of said country, "'deceased, being of sound mind and disposed of memory, "'has upped and kicked the bucket. "'Frank there has got a paper that'll take him through. "'If he didn't have, I wouldn't go step with him.' Captain McCarthy leaned back in his chair "'and looked at Mr. Sanders with great interest.' The steadiness of his gaze was tempered by a pleasant smile which lit his strong and handsome face. I intended to advise you not to carry out your original plan, but that is not necessary. I intended also to beg you by all means not to harm a hair of Mr. Lincoln's head, but that too is unnecessary. You will find that the President is a man after your own heart. Not every which away, I reckon, remarked Mr. Sanders, making a wry face. Yes, and always, except politics, replied McCarthy. 
He is the only man of them all who sees his way clear, or who knows precisely what he wants to do. Outwardly, he is a plain, rough man with a kindly nature. If you get in any trouble, simply demand to be carried to Mr. Lincoln. I have more than one reason for giving you this advice. If Stanton's crowd get you, and are able to keep your case from Mr. Lincoln's ears, you will surely be hanged. A few hours afterward, Bethune and his companion had crossed the river to Jersey City and were on their way to Washington. The first man they saw as they entered the train was Waldron Autry. He was walking about by the side of the coach talking to someone. He had a light military cape hung across his arm, and his tall figure and haughty bearing made him conspicuous in the multitude that swarmed about the station. Undoubtedly, Mr. Autry saw the two Southerners. He paused in his promenade and looked them in the face, under pretense of transferring his cape from one arm to the other. But he made no sign of recognition, nor did they. When the train was under way, Mr. Autry came back into the car. He spoke to one or two, and then seated himself near Bethune and Mr. Sanders, who occupied seats facing each other. After a while a lady came in, whereupon Autry promptly arose, hat in hand, and gave her his seat. "'May I sit by you, sir?' he asked of Mr. Sanders. "'Why, to be sure,' replied that worthy. "'But I'll have to tell you what the old woman told the feller in the stagecoach. "'You can scratch as much as you please, but I don't want no hunching.' Autry threw back his head and smiled broadly. Bethune was occupied in reading the Herald, and seemed to be paying no attention to the newcomer. Finally, he put it down and glanced at Autry, and caught his eye, but saw no sign of recognition there. Indeed, Autry took the opportunity of the glance to borrow Bethune's copy of the Herald, which he read for some minutes with apparent interest. Presently, he said to Mr. Sanders in a low tone, "'Do you see the small man in the farther end of the car? The man with the eyeglasses?' "'Well, he took dinner with you yesterday.' "'You don't say. Is that the chap? Why, how in the world do you know?' inquired Mr. Sanders. "'I was the big fellow with side-whiskers. He had a good deal of fun out of me yesterday, and now I want to turn the joke on him. I'm going to move my seat in a moment, and presently he'll be back here. If you catch his eye, speak to him, and let him see that you know him. But don't expose him. Talk to him in a confidential way. You know what I mean. Don't make an enemy of him. Another thing. When you get off the train in Washington, follow me.' I have something to say to both of you. All this time Mr. Autry pretended to be reading the paper, and his voice was so low that Bethune, sitting four feet away, could only catch a few words. He was very curious, but Mr. Sanders had no opportunity to appease his curiosity, for as Autry joined the group at the rear end of the car, some were standing while others were sitting on the arms of the seats, a small man detached himself from the group and walked down the aisle. He glanced casually at Mr. Sanders, and would have passed on, but the man who was so well acquainted with the Webb family of Salem and Gianni wouldn't permit it. He seized the detective by the hand and shook it. "'Why don't you tell me he was coming down?' he inquired. Then, as if making a sudden discovery, he lowered his voice. "'Why, what's the matter? Why, six alive, man, what have you been doing to yourself?' "'I beg your pardon, sir,' said the other with some asperity. "'You have the advantage of me. I have missed a good deal, no doubt, but I have not the pleasure of your acquaintance.' Mr. Sanders drew himself up and swelled out as if he were about to make some loud exclamation. Then he suddenly caught himself and subsided. Oh, that's the game, is it? Well, why don't you sort of give me a hint like yesterday? No offense. None given, none took. If you ever come out to Salem, come right out to the farm. Walden Autry had followed the detective down the aisle, passed him as he stood talking to Mr. Sanders, and now stood waiting for him out of earshot. Who's your friend? Autry asked nonchalantly, as his companion came up to him. "'Oh, I see. It's the old duck we saw at the hotel yesterday. "'He knew me. Did he know you?' "'He certainly did,' replied the detective. 
What's wrong with me? How did the old blunderbuss know me? Am I losing my grip? Why, no. Not the least in the world, said Autry soothingly. The old man is simply a shrewd countryman with horse sense. Did you ever try to deceive Mr. Lincoln with your disguises? Well, just try it, and you'll find you can't do it. You can fool Stanton, but Mr. Lincoln will see through you with one eye shut. Anyhow, I'm going to hang on to this old man and his son for an hour or so after we get to Washington. I may be able to pick up some information. When the train rolled into the station at the Capitol, Walden Autry managed to be near Bethune and Mr. Sanders, and he insisted that they should go with him. They hesitated. They had not the least confidence in him, but he knew them. He could have them imprisoned by a word or a gesture, and once immured, their lives would be in danger, for Bethune had made up his mind, in case of arrest, to destroy Mr. Lincoln's pass and take his chances with the man who was so cheerfully risking his life as a result of one of Bethune's madcap whims. They had small choice, therefore. In fact, none at all. And all the hesitation they betrayed manifested itself in Mr. Sanders' good-natured protest. "'We don't want to pester you. We don't want to be in the way.' You just show us a good place to eat and sleep, and we'll be mighty much obliged to you. But no, Mr. Autry would not have it so. He insisted, and they gave a ready if not a cheerful assent. He was stopping at a hotel, and he put himself to a little trouble to secure them a room next to the one occupied by himself. In short, he was fertile in all those little attentions which do not look important, but which add so much to the comfort of those who are the objects of them. They had a late but a very good dinner. Mr. Autry wanted to order wine, knowing the character and extent of Mr. Sanders's chief weakness, but they positively refused. Mr. Sanders, indeed, made no bones of explaining why he wouldn't touch the stuff. It's a little stronger in water and not quite as strong as dram, but it flies to my tongue, and no sooner does it do that than I begin to make a speech about my family affairs good and bad, and folks see that I'm every bit and grain as proud of the black spots as I am of the widens. So for the time being, Mr. Sanders was a teetotaler, much to Mr. Autry's disgust, for that gentleman had fully made up his mind to get into the confidence of his former fellow-townsmen, and, if he could advance his own ends by doing so, to turn them over to Mr. Stanton as spies. But he saw at once that Mr. Sanders's unexpected fit of temperance stood mightily in the way. Under the circumstances, he thought it would be best to go about the business in a straightforward manner. It was just possible, he thought, that Bethune and Mr. Sanders, being in the enemy's country, surrounded by all sorts of dangers, and beset by fears, real or imaginary, would turn for advice to an old acquaintance, a man who had been born and raised in the same community. Mr. Autry had long been what is called a man of the world. He had traveled abroad, he had seen life in all its various manifestations, and under social forms widely different, and he considered himself, not without reason, to be a pretty good judge of human nature. The trouble in this case was that he underrated the intellectual resources of Mr. Sanders. He made the mistake that so many sensible men make, namely, that a person who is practically illiterate with respect to textbooks and to the kind of education furnished in the schools must necessarily be deficient in all those qualities that are said to be the result of learning. Therefore Mr. Autry started out with a contempt for Bethune as a cub, and for Mr. Sanders as an ignoramus. Bethune was indeed young in years, and in experience, but he was wise enough to submit to the initiative of an older head, and Mr. Sanders was ignorant of Greek and Latin, algebra, rhetoric, and the like, but he was very familiar with the Bible and his judgment of men, as well as horses and dogs, was all but infallible. He had known Waldron Autry a long time, and knew that he had no fixed principles of any kind whatsoever. Consequently, Mr. Sanders was prepared for any move that might be made. The very first trial of wits between the old Georgia Cracker and the man of the world should have been sufficient to convince Autry that he had no ordinary man to deal with, but he never even suspected that the occurrence was other than an awkward accident. 
It happened in this way. When darkness had fallen, and the lights had been lit, the three sat for a while in Mr. Autry's room, talking about the home folk. Suddenly the latter suggested that they adjourn to the next room, which had been assigned to Bethune and Mr. Sanders. "'Walls have ears, you know,' remarked Autry, "'and we don't know who may be in the room adjoining.' Mr. Sanders noticed that there was no connecting door between Mr. Autry's apartment and the one he desired to avoid, whereas there was a door between Autry's room and the one he had secured for them, and the transom was wide open. There was nothing to do but to act on the suggestion that had been made, but as Autry turned out his light, Mr. Sanders laid his pocket-knife softly on the table. It was a big knife with a horn-handle. Once in their own room, Bethune and Mr. Sanders became the hosts, and Mr. Sanders became unusually talkative. He wanted to know, particularly, what Waldron Autry was doing in this neck of the woods, as he phrased it. How was he getting on? "'You know, Waldron, the folks at home will be mighty glad to hear news about you,' Mr. Sanders declared. Autry laughed bitterly. "'Oh, I dare say,' he replied. "'They'd show their fondness for me if I went back there now.' "'They would. They certainly would,' replied Mr. Sanders solemnly. "'I'd go back this minute if I could,' said Autry, in a low tone. "'Why can't you?' asked Mr. Sanders. If you think that me and Frank are going back there and tell everything we've seen and heard, you're mighty much mistaken. We don't owe you no grudge, and as for me, I always make allowances for men under forty. Now, tell me about yourselves, urged Autry, raising his voice. What under the sun has brought you two, of all men in the world, to Washington? Well, I'll tell you honestly and candidly, Waldron, replied Mr. Sanders. We are here on the most ticklish piece of business you ever heard of, and the foolishest. Mr. Sanders is sitting with his chair careened backward, his hands in his pockets. Suddenly he arose to his feet with an exclamation. "'Be jigged if I ain't lost my knife. Now I wouldn't take a purty for that knife.' He searched in all his pockets, frowning and grumbling. Then his countenance cleared up. "'I know where it is. I left it on the table in the next room.' He was moving toward the door, but Waldron Autry was quicker. "'I'll get it for you,' he said. "'Don't let me trouble you,' insisted Mr. Sanders. "'I can put my hand right on it.' He made as if to follow Autry, but as the latter hurried into the room, Mr. Sanders made two strides to the door leading into the hall, opened it softly, and was just in time to see a well-dressed man slip from Autry's apartment, close the door behind him, and take the attitude of a listener. "'Hello!' exclaimed Mr. Sanders. "'How long you been knocking there?' "'Some time,' replied the man, trying to conceal his surprise. "'Well, I thought I heard a knocking,' remarked Mr. Sanders. "'But when I get to talking, my tongue runs like a fluttermill. "'Waldron, there's a gentleman at your door.' He says he'd been knocking there for the longest, and I shouldn't wonder. Autry went to the door, and he and the newcomer greeted each other effusively. It was, when did you get here, and you must be terribly busy not to hear a fellow hammering on the door, and, you'll have to excuse me, I was talking to some old friends I haven't seen before in years. While this was going on, Mr. Sanders was shaking with silent laughter, but he was the picture of childlike innocence when Waldron Autry returned to his chair, after dismissing his casual guest. <laughs> you forgot my knife, I reckon, said Mr. Sanders, laughing. But if I hadn't pestered you, we'd never heard the chap knocking. Friend of yours? Well, why don't you fetch him in? Any of your friends is more than welcome. You were about to tell me something of the business that brought you here, suggested Mr. Autry. Yes, I was, said Mr. Sanders. And with that he related, in a way more or less graphic, the circumstances that had caused Francis Bethune to resign his commission, and that finally brought him to Washington. Mr. Autry asked to see the pass, and when he had examined it, he said it was as good as gold. But where's your pass? he asked Mr. Sanders. My pass, replied Mr. Sanders, is like the gal's fortune. For the first time, Mr. Autry indulged in laughter, and it was so becoming to him that Mr. Sanders remarked it and said, You ought to laugh a heap more than you do, Waldron. It makes you look like you was a boy again. Now, about the letter or dispatch, can you lay your hands on it? said Autry. 
Francis Bethune drew forth a package of letters and papers, and proceeded to search for the dispatch. Among the papers was half of a daguerreotype case which contained the picture of a lady. The tones of the picture had been somewhat subdued by time, but this added to the soft beauty of the face. It was the picture of Miss Puella Gillum. The gentle eyes had an appealing glance in them, and there was just the suspicion of a smile playing around the mouth. The picture had slipped from the papers and lay under the light, face up. Mr. Autry saw it. "'Ah, oh, your sweetheart?' "'Oh, no,' replied Bethune. "'Not my sweetheart, but the best friend I ever had in the world.' Mr. Autry took the picture in his hand, looked at it, and drew a long breath. "'Puella Gillum,' he said softly. "'Yes,' remarked Mr. Sanders in his matter-of-fact way. "'She's still a-waitin' for you, Aldrin. "'For me? "'That's what we all think. "'Oh, no. "'No, you are mistaken. "'The man good enough for her has never been born. "'She's the only woman that could have made me different from what I am.' "'Why didn't you let her try her hand?' Mr. Sanders inquired. "'If ever a man tried to marry a woman, I tried to marry her,' replied Autry. There was a touch of boyish frankness in his voice. "'Well, you was a pretty wild colt, and I'm afeard you ain't broke to harness yet.' All this time Mr. Autry had never lifted his eyes from the picture. Finally he laid it down with a sigh. Mr. Sanders, regarding him closely, saw that all the insolence had died out of his eyes. Instead of the sneer that usually hovered around his mouth, there was a whimsical, half-petulant expression— as when a boy has a grievance of some kind. Bethune found the dispatch, and now laid it before him. Autry took the picture in one hand, and the paper in the other, and held them up side by side, then threw his head back and smiled brightly. Here is the angel, said he, holding the picture higher, and here is the serpent. If the angel could talk, it would approve what I am now going to do. He struck a match, and held the dispatch in the flame. The paper burned, with some difficulty, being thick and heavy, but Mr. Autry persisted until the last vestige had been reduced to ashes. "'If you had presented that dispatch to the man to whom it is addressed,' he said to Bethune, "'you would never have seen your home and friends again. You don't know what a devil Doyle is.' He paused and looked at Mr. Sanders with a peculiar smile. "'And I am worse. A hundred times worse. Doyle and I are trying to make a record in the Secret Service,' Autry continued, "'and we seized on the opportunity offered by Mr. Lincoln's desire to get a dangerous woman off his hands.' But for the president, the woman would be in the old capital prison at this moment, but he heard of her arrest and sent for her. He desired to send her south under the escort of an officer, but the woman declared that she wouldn't trust herself to the care of any enemy of her country. Mrs. Lincoln, who is a southern woman, understood the situation from that standpoint, and sympathized with the demand. Yes, demand. You wouldn't think a woman who was in prison a few weeks ago, with evidence enough against her to send her to the gallows, would be bold enough to make demands but that is just what has happened. "'Well, there ain't no accounting for the women,' remarked Mr. Sanders. "'Do you know who this woman is?' inquired Autry, turning to Bethune. "'I have not the slightest idea,' was the reply. "'Up here she calls herself Estelle Brandon, but at home she is known as Mrs. Elise Clopton.' "'My aunt?' cried Bethune, the blood rushing to his face. "'The same,' said Autry, with a smile. "'Well, if you had to give me three guesses, I'd a call her name,' exclaimed Mr. Sanders. "'It's most like knowing folks' handwriting.' "'I'll tell you it's a solemn truth, Waldron,' Mr. Sanders went on gravely. "'For a omen that's got a heap of sense, Lise Clopton is the biggest fool that ever trod shoe-leather. "'I don't reckon I ought to talk that away, but it's the naked truth. "'I've got a right to say it, too, because I'd knock down and drag out anybody else that said it outside the family. "'Fool she is, I'm mighty fond of Lise.' "'Bethune made a grimace. "'I don't like her much, but I'm glad I came. "'I hope her experience will take some of the silly romance out of her head.' "'Shucks! You couldn't get it out of her unless you changed her head. "'I bet you right now she thinks she's done wonders,' remarked Mr. Sanders. 
<laughs> that's true said mr autry laughing she thinks she is quite a heroine all of a sudden his manner changed come we've been here too long they're expecting me to carry you to headquarters and some of the boys will come here pretty soon to see what's the matter we have no time to waste i'll take you to mr lincoln at once after that you'll be safe he hustled around with a great display of energy and seemed to be really anxious and uneasy mr sanders who had developed a copious supply of what he called good healthy suspicion put several questions to mr autry the latter finally handed mr sanders a loaded pistol take this he said and if things don't go to suit you put a ball through my head all right waldron so be it i'll do as you say mr sanders remarked in a tone of relief autry ordered a carriage and in a very few minutes they were on their way to the white house the hour was not late and when they arrived there was considerable bustle about the doors congressmen were coming and going and big bugs as mr sanders expressed it of various degrees of importance were moving to and fro there seemed to be some difficulty about seeing mr lincoln but autry would not be denied he was as pompous and as imperious in his demand to be shown into mr lincoln's office as any member of the cabinet could have been he sent a card in and followed the messenger to the very door he had written on the card in regard to the branding case and presently someone came out and conducted the three through a side door into the private room to which mr lincoln retired when he was troubled or had a fit of melancholy that somehow went hand in hand with him until his unfortunate taking off a fire was burning on the hearth and the three callers sat in silence while waiting for mr lincoln to make his appearance they waited a long time as it seemed to bethune and mr sanders and even when the door opened and a tall man with tousled black hair came into the room he was followed by a thick-set quick-spoken person whose features were almost entirely concealed by a heavy beard and spectacles with wide glasses but mr president said this person with a show of indignation you will ruin the discipline of the army if you go on reprieving deserters why this case is a most flagrant one oh yes i know all about that but he's a mere lad why he's not more than twenty-two he got tired and hungry and homesick why when his mother came in this morning and told me the facts i didn't let her finish i said hold on madam you've said enough i know all about the case i've been in your son's shoes a hundred times but mr president interposed the other but mr secretary interrupted the president you forget that every soldier in the union army is a free-born american citizen we can't afford to hang american citizens because they get homesick and heart-heavy you remind me of a fellow i once heard of in kentucky but before the president could point the moral with the story mr secretary had whipped indignantly out of the room slamming the door behind him with no show of respect whatever the three visitors had arisen from their chairs when mr lincoln entered the room and at least two of them regarded him with interest and curiosity as he came slouching toward them with a chuckle these gentlemen mr president have come in regard to the branding case said mr autry introducing the two georgians you forwarded a pass through me if you remember mr bethune accepted the commission and mr sanders well mr president i just come on my own hook as the little boy said about the cow in the garden mr sanders hastened to say take seats all of you remarked mr lincoln cordially then he turned to mr sanders what about the little boy and the cow why one sunday a little boy was set to mind a gap in the garden fence a panel had blown down in the night and it couldn't be mended on account of sunday so the little boy was set to mind it when the folks got home from church the cow was in the garden and the little boy was sitting on the doorstep sniffling his mammy says why honey what in the world is the matter the garden is ruined how did the cow get in she run her horns under my jacket and flung me a somerset says the little boy i see says his daddy she got in on her own hook the daddy had thought he got off a good joke 
but nobody seed the two pints, and this made him so mad that he went in the house and loaded his gun with a piece of fat bacon and fired it right at the cow's hindquarters. She curled her tail and run off smoking. They say you could smell fried meat in the neighborhood for the longest. Mr. Lincoln clasped his hands behind his head and laughed a hearty, contented laugh. Mr. Autry regarded Mr. Sanders with a puzzled expression. Did you say the joke had two points, he asked? Why, certain and sure, responded Mr. Sanders, with alacrity. You've seen cows, maybe, with no horns, but you've never seen one made like a rhinosaurus. At this, Mr. Lincoln laughed unrestrainedly. Whatever reserve the shadow of care and trouble had cast over him when he entered the room had been driven entirely away, and his visitors had a very close and intimate view of the real Lincoln, the man of the people. At last, when it seemed time for them to go, Mr. Autry remarked, The reason I took the liberty of bringing these gentlemen here was that some of Mr. Stanton's men were preparing to arrest them. You did exactly right, said Mr. Lincoln emphatically. I'm willing for Stanton to have his fingers in all the pies, if you'll let me break the crust in places. Well, at the pace he's going, he'll soon have the whole thing in his own hands, remarked Mr. Autry. The whole thing, as you call it, replied Mr. Lincoln, leveling a searching glance at the young man. Couldn't be in better hands. I'm told every day that Mr. Stanton has small respect for the president, and I reckon that's so, but the president is willing to rock along on a small allowance of respect when he's getting a steady supply of the kind of work Stanton is doing day and night. That's so, remarked Mr. Sanders judiciously. Was Mr. Stanton the man that followed you in here? Receiving an affirmative answer, Mr. Sanders went on. I allowed so from his walk and talk, but the way you played with him put me in mind of the feller and his trained dog. How was that? asked Mr. Lincoln, leaning back in his chair and twisting his long legs together in most curious fashion. Every trace of fatigue and worry had vanished from his face. Well, it was like this. A feller down our way had a hound dog that he thought was the finest pup in all creation. He was good for foxes, good for minks, good for rabbits, good for coons, and especially for possums. Naturally, the feller was constant a-bragging on the dog. Well, one day the feller had company at his house. The dog was lying in a corner of the fireplace, and presently the feller got to bragging on him. He said the dog was both trained and domesticated. That dog, he says to his company, will do anything in the world I tell him to do. The company sorter doubted about it, and the feller ups and says, Rover, get up from there and go out of here. Rover, hearing his name, hit the floor a lick or two with his tail and draped off to sleep again. The feller hollered a little louder. Rover, don't you hear? Get up from there and go out of here. Rover got up, looked at the feller like he thought he was crazy, and sneaked under the bed. Well, the company laughed considerable, but the feller stuck to his statements. Says he, there's a mighty good understanding between me and Rover. He knows when I'm playing, and besides, he's a plum hurricane when it comes to running coops up a tree. Mr. Lincoln laughed and looked at Mr. Sanders with a quizzical expression. Just then, there came a rap on the door. The President arose, made two long strides across the room, and threw the door open. Mr. President, I heard something a while ago, and I think you should be told about it, said the newcomer excitedly. Well, what is it? Why, when Mr. Stanton went out just now, I heard him say you were a damned fool. Did you hear him say it? Mr. Lincoln asked. Yes, Mr. President, I heard with my own ears. Well, if Stanton said that, I reckon there must be something in it. He usually knows what he's talking about. I thought you had some news for me. Good heavens, Mr. President, exclaimed the person at the door. Yes, said Mr. Lincoln solemnly. Good heavens and good night. Bethune sat with clenched hands. He could hardly believe what he had heard. He was dazed. He drew a long breath, arose from his chair, and took a quick turn around the room. Mr. Lincoln observed the young man's excitement. He paused before he seated himself, and turned to Bethune with a smile that did not drive away the expression of sadness which had returned to his face. 
"'What would happen if one of Mr. Davis's advisers should make a similar statement?' he asked. Bethune replied with gleaming eyes, "'Mr. President, the man who heard the remark would knock the scoundrel down and afterward call him out.' "'I reckon that's so. Mr. Davis has more close friends than I have,' remarked Mr. Lincoln with a sigh. He seated himself and closed his eyes. "'It ain't so much being friends,' said Mr. Sanders somewhat cheerfully, though in his honest Georgia heart he deeply pitied the President.' and understood why he was lonely and sometimes melancholy. It ain't so much being friends, it's because we're all in high hosses down yon from daybreak till bedtime. Well, I wish... Mr. Lincoln paused and looked in the fire. Mr. Sanders seized the remark and finished it. You wish someone to get on a high horse for you? Well, sir, if at any time I'm around, and any of your fellers begin for you to give you too much lip, just turn around to me and say, Friend Sanders, what do you think of the state of the country and the craps in general? You say them words, Mr. President, and if I don't make the feller say his prayers to you, you may call me a humbug. Down our way they say you're a Yankee, but if that's so, the woods is full of Yankees in Georgia, all born and raised right there. Mr. Lincoln laughed with real enjoyment. <laughs> you're paying me the highest compliment I have had in many a day, he said. But we can't sit here palavering all night. He tapped a bell and a messenger appeared. See if the ladies have gone to bed. Word soon came back that the ladies were taking a light refreshment and would the president join them. "'I want you gentlemen to see what sort of a job you have undertaken,' Mr. Lincoln remarked dryly. "'I can manage a mule or a steer pretty well, but not a willful woman.' "'Amen!' exclaimed Mr. Sanders with unction. The president led the way, followed by Bethune and Mr. Sanders, Mr. Autry saying he would wait for their return. Before they reached the room where the ladies were, the laughter and chatter of Elise Clopton could be heard. She was in high glee— Francis Bethune never knew until that hour why he disliked his aunt. It was the uncertainty and absurdity of her temperament. One moment she was taking herself more seriously than a heroine of romance, the next she had plunged head foremost into, well, into inconsequence. She was as truly herself here, practically a prisoner, as if she had been at once queen and housemaid. She had met Bethune's uncle by accident while he was passing through Washington on his way to Harvard. She, herself, was on her way to a young lady's school in Baltimore. Neither one of them got any farther. The result of half an hour's conversation, while waiting for the train to leave, was an elopement. In a year or two her husband was dead, but her bereavement had not sobered Elise. At thirty-five she was still as beautiful and as lacking in judgment as when a miss of sixteen. When Bethune and Mr. Sanders were ushered into the room, Elise clapped her hands together as the soubrettes do on the stage, gave a smothered scream, supposed to represent joy, and fell upon Francis Bethune and kissed him until he wished himself well out of the uncomfortable position. Francis, she cried, allow me to present you to my dear, dear friend, Mrs. Lincoln. My nephew, Mrs. Lincoln, and here is Mr. Sanders. Oh, you dear good man, you make me feel quite at home. Mrs. Lincoln, this is my dear old friend, Mr. Sanders. Are both of you prisoners, too? Oh, isn't it glorious to suffer for one's country? Bethune looked at Mr. Lincoln. The president was standing with his hands clasped behind him. He was not smiling, but there was a comical expression on his face. Mrs. Lincoln was laughing unrestrainedly, and it was very evident to Bethune that the lady of the White House had found Elise Clopton sufficiently amusing. His irritation was such that he could scarcely refrain from showing it in words. Youngster as he was, it seemed to him that the whole South was here on exhibition in the person of his frivolous aunt. He was on the point of saying something regrettable, when Mr. Sanders stepped in as it were. "'You don't look like you've been suffering for your country much. Appearances is mighty deceiving if you ain't been having three square meals a day, fried meat and biscuit and hot coffee for breakfast, collards and dumplings and buttermilk for dinner, and ash cake and molasses for supper.' 
You see how the men mistake us, protested Elise, turning to Mrs. Lincoln. Our keenest anguish is mental. But the men never think they are suffering unless they are in physical pain. And the men think the women are too timid to take any risks. Look at me, Mr. Sanders. I see you, Elise, said Mr. Sanders, so dryly that Mrs. Lincoln burst out laughing. Don't mind him, dear friend. He always was comical. And then there was your grandmother, Mr. Sanders, Nancy Hart. Didn't she suffer for her country? She stayed at home and hit the Tories a lick when they pestered her, two for one, maybe. But she didn't complain of no suffering, so far as I know. The suffering was all with them that pestered her. Anyhow, we've come to take you home, and when we get there, I'm going to build a pen to keep you in. Goodness knows I don't want to be running my head in no more hornet's nest. Why, you don't call this a hornet's nest, I hope, said Mrs. Lincoln, smiling. By no manner of means, mum, replied Mr. Sanders with a bow. This is the only home-like place I've struck since I left Shady Dale. But I hear you're a southerner, and Mr. Lincoln is a Georgie all over, and that accounts for it. If we weren't here, where'd we be? Well, we'll go back now and talk about Georgia, said Mr. Lincoln. Tomorrow or the next day we'll arrange about the lady's journey home. Yes, I am willing to go now, said Elise dramatically. I have performed my duty. I've risked my life for my native Southland. If you only knew what a close call it was, you'd doubtless be prouder still, I reckon, remarked Mr. Lincoln with a smile. With that, Bethune and Mr. Sanders bade the ladies good night and followed the president to his private office, where Waldron Autry awaited them. They were for returning to the hotel at once, as the hour was growing late, but Mr. Lincoln would not hear to it unless they were willing to admit that they were tired of his company. There were nights, he said, when sleep fitted away from his neighborhood and refused to be coaxed back, and this, he thought, would prove to be one of those nights. First he wrote out a new certificate for Francis Bethune, as well as a document to ensure the safety of Mr. Sanders, and then he began to talk about Georgia sure enough, addressing his conversation mainly to Mr. Sanders, whose comments he appeared thoroughly to enjoy. He asked about the people, their views and hopes. Once he declared that if the people of the South knew his intentions and desires as well as he did himself, he believed they would put an end to the war and come back into the Union. "'But what about the politicians?' calmly inquired Mr. Sanders. "'That's a fact,' exclaimed Mr. Lincoln. "'The politicians and the editors. We have them here, too. Oh, I was just telling you of a dream I once had.' "'And then again you're an abolitionist, Mr. President,' said Mr. Sanders. "'Well, that matter has been settled, so far as I can settle it. "'But up to a few months ago, that question was a mere matter of moonshine compared to the Union. "'I said as much to Horace Greeley, and he and his friends had a good many duck-fits about it. "'All the government doors have big keyholes except Stanton's. "'Well, abolitionism was a great question, but it was small compared with the preservation of the Union. "'All other political questions are small by the side of that.' They talked until some time after midnight, with occasional interruptions from messengers connected with the War Department or with some of the committees of Congress. Once Mr. Lincoln, after receiving a telegram, held it open in his hand, and was silent a long time. Finally he folded it lengthwise many times, and then wrapped it around his forefinger, holding it in place with his thumb. "'It has got so now,' he said, breaking the silence, "'that I can tell by the rumble of the wheels whether the man in the carriage is fetching good news or bad.' The president made no remark about the contents of the telegram, but he fell into such a state of abstraction that Bethune nodded to the others, and simultaneously they all arose and bade him good night. He no longer urged them to stay, but asked them to return early the next day, saying that he wanted to have a good long talk with friend Sanders. End of section 8